And good morning and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, on Element FM. And you are listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. In Ottawa at 95.7, in Toronto at 106.5. And you can also listen anywhere across Canada by downloading the Radio Player Canada app and uh, typing in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM. And you can listen on your device anywhere across Canada. On our show today, we have a couple of uh, call-in guests. Our first uh, guest this morning is Darling Coward-Wright, and she is the curator of the Inuit Arts Centre in Winnipeg. We'll be speaking to her in a moment. But I also wanted to tell you that coming up in the second part of the show, we will be speaking with Sarah Monroe, and uh, she is with the Bentway in Toronto. We're going to be talking about uh, the Bentway and things going on there. But I would like to welcome to the program this morning... Darlene Coward-Wright, she is on the line from Winnipeg. Good morning, Darlene. Good morning, David. And how are you? I'm just fine, thank you. And how's the weather up there in Winnipeg? Not as warm as we'd like. <laughs> is it it's ever? That, I guess it does get pretty warm up there, though, doesn't it? It's been that kind of winter, mm. cold. Is there any uh, any concerns at, with flooding or anything at this point in time? or? Yes, there is. Mm. Yeah, fortunately, we've had a slow melt this spring, mm. but there was there was a report this morning of uh, one of the bridges being flooded. Oh yeah. So we're yeah they're keeping a close eye. Right. Well, we're here to uh, speak this morning about uh, the new uh, Inuit Art Center that's that's going to be opening up in 2020, I believe it is. Yes. And uh, I understand that you've been the curator for some time up there at the at the Inuit Arts Centre as well and gallery. Yes, I've been curator of Inuit Art for 32 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, congratulations. That's, uh, you certainly must have learned something over that time. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope so, yes. I've had many opportunities to visit uh, artists in the North and have conversations and write books about their work, so it's it's been a very exciting career. So can you tell me a little bit about the opportunities you've had, as you just mentioned, to, to visit the North? Where Whereabouts have you visited the North? Well, um, I, I started working, actually, uh, for the Arctic Co-ops in oh, 1981, yeah. mm-hmm. and uh, um, so in 1982, I made my first trip to Joe Haven and Tulukiwak in the high central Arctic. Mm-hmm. Um, I was uh, seeing some great art coming from there, and I wanted to speak with the artists and tell them that I wanted to uh, feature their work in, in commercial exhibitions in galleries. And so uh, I had to borrow a parka and head it up on a DC-3, and uh, it was the adventure of a lifetime. What time, of year, what time of year did you go up? Oh, actually, I guess it was only about October, but mm. it was, uh, you know, it was winter. Sure. Yeah. So, so tell me, when, when you first encountered uh, the North for yourself and visiting the artists in the North, what was your perception of the artists in terms of their, their sense of what they were bringing forward on, on an international scale of, of, uh, of, of work? Well, they knew that their work was coming down to uh, the co-op in the south, mm-hmm. and then we were we were distributing it internationally to galleries. Mm-hmm. Um, part of my job was to keep them up to date as to what was happening to their work, and you know, if if a dealer wanted an exhibition of, say, Judas Ulula's work, then I would make sure that. 
uh, he knew about it and that he was uh, working toward that. So I think they had a very, um, you know, not a complete knowledge because they really didn't come down to exhibitions mm. back in the 80s anyway. They just knew that their work was appreciated. Mm. And, um, you know, they uh, they it was very exciting for them to show their lives um, and know that people in another country were were looking at it. So you know, I think it was really exciting for them. So there's a, there's a, a whole other world up in the north, isn't there? That whole circumpolar area is is quite fascinating. Oh, it certainly is. Yes, I I just. Over the years, I was always amazed. Every community that I visited was different. Um, the, the people were um, speaking different dialects uh, in from place to place. Um, the uh, customs, the clothing was different. So it was just, it was really uh, fascinating. Now, you just, you just mentioned a couple of things there. So, so the way uh, the cultures were different, the dialects. How did that help you in terms of presenting the work that you were, were showing down in the south, how did that give you a sense of of what the environment was, or what the artist was, or what the the personal touch that you wanted to bring forward? Oh, it was absolutely crucial. Um, I always dragged a, a tape recorder around with me, and people were you know quite surprised and couldn't figure out what I was up to. But I I always wanted to get their their stories mm. and their their words. I always wanted them to explain to me what they were carving or drawing and and I was very much um uh, that that was my creed I I that I wanted to get the artist's words uh, to the south and to have the um the explanations of the carvings in the artist's words mm. now you mentioned stories which I think is is really interesting uh because part of the description of of the gallery is that there's a story for every piece and and it is about the artists. It's about the, the, the artist's representation of what they're bringing forward. But it's also about their family and their, their, their area and, uh, and their, their family and their life. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely, yes. I did uh, just did an exhibition last year uh, for an, a female artist, and she was from the Back River area in um, the Kavalik region. And... You know the lifestyle there was so much different than it was in other places because it was an inland community, mm. and so I learned. You know, I learned that the dogs were used as pack animals, not as, you know, pulling sleds. So it it's fascinating how different um, the culture was in place from place to place, and you, you know, just when you think, oh well, it's just a a dog team, but there's probably some story behind it. Mm. Dogs were a lifeline in many cases. Yes, for sure. Uh, and it's sad what happened to the, the to the dogs and how uh, how the, the Inuit were treated. Uh, in in as was pointed out again uh, with their nomadic lifestyle and how their their life was changed and impacted. Oh, it it was in many ways, and I I heard stories of of uh, the dogs when they were. Um, they were shot actually mm-hmm. in a, in a lot of the places in um, <coughs> excuse me in Baffin Island, and it's it's pretty shocking to to imagine that that, that could even happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had the, the 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 pleasure of going north uh, a couple of times. Uh, I, I went up to uh, Iqaluit, and, and also I went over to um, to Akviat and um, and spent a little bit of time there. 
which I felt very fortunate to be able to do. What I found interesting, because you're talking about art, is I remember uh, in this little community of Akviet or Arviet, um, and I'm not sure if you've been there, but I, I remember saying, hey, I, you know, are there any artists? I wouldn't mind seeing some stuff and see what's up here. And, and it's interesting, in, and moaning if you found this, that, that how the artists, um, they don't have galleries, and, and maybe that's different with the co-ops now, but you know, their art would be laying around outside <laughs> as they've been carving or working on it, and it's just all this stuff lying out, lying out in their yard. Mm-hmm. Well, because of the dust that's mm. generated when they're carving, that um, you know, carvers, they have to be outside. Mm. Some of them are fortunate enough to have a little shed that mm. they can carve in or some kind of uh, shelter. Mm. But, yeah, that's the carving is done outside. Yeah, I was quite surprised that, yeah, just walk around. There it is all laying out there. It was quite, quite interesting. <laughs> yes. So uh, now listen, let's talk about this new space because in, in setting that up, what we've just talked about from the north, uh, when I see images of this new building that's, that's uh, going to be uh, opening in 2020 and I look at, at how it is designed, um, that the outside itself looks very northern. It looks like either a, a wind or, or, a, or, or a, 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 a sheet of snow or something. Yes, well, the architect, uh, Michael Molson, is from Los Angeles, mm. and he had come up with a design for the building, which was nothing like that at all, and um, he uh, he went north. I, I took uh, Michael, his wife, his two children, and our director, and the other architect from Winnipeg, uh, George Sibonell, we went north, and we went up to Pangnertung, actually. Mm which is a very beautiful mountainous area on the Cumberland Sound and took a boat out into the Sound. And Michael was seeing for the first time little floating, um, you know, little little smaller than icebergs, but they were certainly impressive for Mm -hmm. him from L.A. Mm -hmm. And he took pictures of these floating icebergs and was so impressed. He was impressed with the light uh, in the north. And so he came back and he completely redid his design, um, just inspired by uh, the landscape and the the ice and the the light that he'd experienced. So are are the people that this represents as Inuit people, are they happy with this design? Oh, I think so. Everybody that's come, and we've had quite a few people here in the last, you know, we we often have people visiting here mm-hmm. because they come down for medical and mm-hmm. so on, and and they're they're just amazed. Like mm-hmm. they're just <laughs> they're just absolutely amazed that that this is going to be built um, mm-hmm. to show their work. You know, we go down to the vault in the basement and see um, shelves and shelves of carvings all lined up, uh, and then to think that soon all of those stone carvings at least will soon be out up in the uh, in the light in a beautiful visible vault um it's really hard for people to even uh, comprehend how exciting it's going to be yeah we're, let's talk about that vault in a second but when you say that um and you you talk about all this this uh, art that is below level in the basement and and not being seen right now i i th- i guess that's the that's the the thing with many galleries, isn't it? That that much of it, like like an iceberg, uh, a lot of it is is hidden. You don't get to see it because there's so much that is being stored. 
Yes, that's true. But because we're very anxious that we can share our art with with the North, with all the people that made it, um, we're maybe a little bit more anxious than than museums that have uh, paintings by European or you know long dead artists. Mm. I mean, uh, much of what we have, you know, has just been made in the last sixty or seventy years. Mm. And so it's a very um, uh, vital part of of the culture. Yeah. So you know it's it's so important to have it uh, more accessible. Mm. And uh, part of our of our project here will be um, we're digitizing the works. We will we will have them online uh, in on a website so that people can access them digitally as mm. well as, as in person. Right. I guess that helps with students that might be doing uh, some kind of resourcing or, or, or uh, uh, um, looking into this stuff that they're, they're doing uh, studies on as well. Absolutely, and just being able to figure out that, oh my goodness, my grandfather's carvings are here, <laughs> or my mother's carvings. Mm. You know, it's, it's really interesting for people because... You know, they would carve in the north, and they would sell their work to the co-op or to the Hudson's Bay Company, mm-hmm. and it's gone. You know, they have no idea really where it might have gone. Mm-hmm. And so to realize that it's been collected over, you know, 50 years, um, they, you know, it's really very exciting for people to see that they can actually find their work of their relatives here. Yeah. And, and this will be, I understand, the largest Inuit uh, 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 collection in the world. It is, yes. Um, the largest contemporary Inuit art. Mm. And that by that we consider from the early 50s to the present day when people started creating um, art as, as an industry, basically. Yeah. You know, when people started moving off the land uh, into communities, there was very little uh, types of work that they could do in offices and so on. So carving was just um, a very important way that people could finally make money mm. uh, in a new cash economy. Mm. So, yeah, it's been a very important part of their their life. So let's go back and talk about the vault, which I understand is going to be, be, be seen from 360 degrees in a very high ceiling, uh, a glass vault that people can, can, um, can view. Yes, that's right. In fact, you can see it from the street. Um, the, um, the outer wall on the ground level will be glass, and so you can walk along the street and look through, and you can see the glass vault inside and um you can actually come into the foyer into the main part of the the floor free of charge and look at the vault um up close the vault is uh, three stories high uh it has uh, glass shelves and um we're just working at ways that we can um you know, bring the stories to people from those glass shelves onto mm. computer screens and using various uh, means of technology. It sounds very exciting. I'm getting excited just listening to you describe it and, and <laughs> wonder what this will look like when it's completed. It sounds very, very interesting. Um, now, I understand, though, that, that it's also crucial for, uh, for, for your last year uh, to to also start to raise money because you've had contributions from government and the city of Winnipeg, but you also need donations. I understand. 
Yes, that's right. We have been very fortunate. We've had all levels of government um, give us uh, funding, and so we're just in the you know in the final. We're down to about the final ten million that we have to raise in a sixty-five million dollar project. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I mean, people are coming forward. We're going to be in Toronto next week um, talking to people there and letting them know about the project if they aren't aware. And uh, so we're pretty optimistic that we're going to reach our goal. Can you tell us about where you'll be in Toronto and and, um, where people can access you while while you're here? Well, it's, um, it's not really a public event okay. that we're at. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of a, a, a private fundraising okay. event that, that uh, BMO is uh, mm. uh, organizing for us. They're being, uh, BMO is being very helpful um, mm. and, and you know, uh, hosting an event in which we're hoping to raise, raise some money. Right, okay. <laughs> but you're still looking for, for public donations as well, that people can probably go to your website, I guess, and contribute there? Oh, absolutely, yes. Our website has uh, uh, different ways of accessing us. And yes. what, what, what do you want to give out your website? It's just very simple, wag.ca, wag.ca. All right. Um, now, I'd like to hear more about the building itself, if you don't mind. Let's let's sort of walk through. We've we sort of described the vault that people can see in the 65-degree uh, access that they'll have, as you said. What else is going to be in this building that makes it unique? Well, we're going to have uh, different educational areas. Uh, there will be a, <clears throat> one gallery that will be, uh, so we're sort of thinking of it as a community gallery where families can come in and um, even uh, touch uh, carvings that are made out of stone if you're for the um, sight impaired um, mm. <clears throat> and um, Excuse me, I'm going to just take a sip of water here. Sure, by all means. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Yeah, and we have what we're calling the learning steps where students can sit and look at a screen that will connect them with a classroom in the north. Um, We're very excited about this technology. It's uh, Cisco technology, and um, one classroom can speak with another classroom. Um, we have a number of studios. Um, <clears throat> the Winnipeg Art Gallery has long been an art school, mm. and uh, <clears throat> our top uh, top story, which will open onto a rooftop uh, outside, uh, will have uh, studios where people will come and learn how to make art. And uh, that will be really fun to actually be able to go outside. Um, we might have artists in residence uh, working here, uh, doing carving demonstrations outside. Um, We're going to have an amazingly large 8,000-square-foot gallery that has skylights and will give sort of diffused um, what will hopefully look kind of like Arctic light, uh, bathing this huge um, gallery. Um, it will be actually the largest gallery devoted to uh, Inuit art in the world. So we will have we'll be able to keep um, circulating exhibitions there, you know, show things for a little while and take them down and put new things out. And we have some smaller galleries um, throughout the building that we will be able to use for um, different displays, you know, prints and drawings and textiles and. And film. We'll be able to show film in one of the areas. Uh, so there's going to be a real diversity of 
types of spaces that will be um, very open to, you know, visitors. Mm. Uh, that sounds like a great spot for us to take a short pause, Darlene. If you don't mind, we're going to just uh, take care of this break, and we will be right back on Moment of Truth and Element FM with Darlene Coward-Wright. She is the curator at the Winnipeg Art Gallery. Right back after this. And you are back on a Moment of Truth and Element FM. We are speaking with the curator of the Winnipeg Art Gallery, Darlene Coward-White. I apologize, Darlene. Very, uh, very sorry that I, I got that incorrect earlier. No problem. Common mistake. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, uh, we were just describing the building and how it's going to be laid out. Uh, this new facility. Can you tell me where it will be located in the city? I'm, I'm trying to get a sense of where it will be in association with other other uh, spaces in the city. Well, we're on Memorial Avenue. Um, we're actually right across from the very large Hudson's Bay Company store that's on Portage, uh, right downtown. Okay. Um, the the new uh, Inuit Art Center is. Um, attached, it will be attached on every level with a walkway to the main building. Mm. And uh, we will actually have a really beautiful view. We can look out at the legislative buildings from one of the one of the rooms. Mm. So that will be looking what south. That's right. Yeah. Right. Um, so now let's talk a little bit more about. Um, what you anticipate for this in the future? Well, we're going to be having all kinds of uh, programming. Um, we want to have artists visiting us. Um, artist residencies will be um, a really fun part of what we do here. Uh, we're going to be having ever-changing exhibitions with artists visiting um, people that are in the exhibitions will be uh, visiting us. Um, our education team is very busily preparing for um, our exchanges with the North. We really see the art the art center as a bridge to the North. It's not going to just be uh, us sitting here waiting for people to to walk in our doors. We're reaching out into the community, um, organizing um, different events that will be um, you know, will bring people here. Um, Performers. We'll, we mm. are looking forward to having uh, Inuit performers here in our some of our our great um, spaces. That sounds very exciting, and it's always nice to hear uh, either Inuit throat singing or drumming. I love their drum. It's a, it's absolutely a, a beautiful instrument that resonates so uh, so wonderfully, and just the way they play it is is unique in itself. Um. Can you, I, I'm, you know, we're, we're, we have about uh, five minutes left or so. I'm just wondering, um, you say you've been doing this for 30-some-odd years, which is fascinating, and congratulations, and congratulations on this new facility, and it sounds wonderful, and, uh, and, and I'm hoping that it's a, a huge success for you, the city, as well as uh, maybe internationally. Are you expecting... Um, visitors that that will like when you were talking about uh, classrooms, for instance, and that participation that's going to be able to go back and forth. Do you expect um, that students only in the Winnipeg area will be benefiting from this, or do you expect other people around the province or, or across the country that might be participating or being able to take advantage of it? 
Oh, I think that it's going to really become a destination. Um, uh, Winnipeg is becoming kind of a a center for the north. We have a a wonderful um, museum for human rights here, uh, the Manitoba Museum, which has the Hudson's Bay Company permanent collection. We have uh, Journey to Churchill, uh, an amazing uh, exhibit at our zoo, Mm. and it features uh, an, an amazing display with um, polar bears swimming in a tank literally around you. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, Winnipeg is going to become a, a, you know, a real destination for international. I mean, it, it is now, actually. There are a lot of people that come here, uh, collectors, uh, students that come here to study uh, Inuit art because uh, you know, we do have 12,500 pieces so uh, you know, there's a a real depth that uh, that people can learn from from here, and they do they travel. But mm-hmm. I think it'll be even more so. I think this is going to appeal to groups. You know, people that are traveling up to Churchill will certainly be stopping here. Um, so we we do have um, a fair amount of of tour artistic tourism mm-hmm. now, and then that that will increase. So I'd like to ask you as we're leaving, uh, as we're closing out our interview, um, from your time spent doing this, what are some of the strongest memories or the things that have stood out to you? What will you take away uh, from this whole experience when you leave? Well, I guess many of my best experiences have been in the North when I've been talking to artists and showing them photographs of the work that we have here and they're showing me the new work that they're doing and just hearing their their stories those have been the the very very special times but then also when when the artists travel to the opening of an exhibition um it is absolutely uh, amazing for an artist to first see an exhibition installed mm. of of their work um you know there's that's that's probably the number one thrill for me is to actually have them realize um where their work um has gone and the you know the the fact that many people will be seeing it and that there's a book you know many of my exhibitions have catalogs so for an artist to to pick up a catalog of work you know with their work in it um, it's so exciting for me to, to see them um, experiencing that. Mm. Wonderful. Darlene, it's been great having you on the show today. I thank you for your time, and I thank you for taking time out of your busy day to do this. I wish you all the best, and congratulations on the new Inuit Art Center that's going to be opening in 2020. And um, also, do you still want to uh, give out that website once more for people that might want to donate? Certainly, it's just simply W-A-G, as in Winnipeg Art Gallery, wag.ca. All right. So, uh, Darlene, once again, thank you very much for taking the time to be on the show with us today, and uh, all the best. And we're going to actually go out with a song uh, from uh, uh, someone from the North, Tanya Tagak. Thanks once again, Darlene. Hope to speak with you again. A pleasure, David. Tanya Tagak on Element FM and 106.5 and 95.7 in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, uh, David Moses, and I just want to uh, uh, 
uh, say thank you once again to Darlene Coward-White, who is the curator of the Winnipeg Art Gallery and the new Inuit Art Centre that will be opening in 2020 for coming on the show with us in the first half. But let's move on to the second half. We have another exciting guest with us on the line from Toronto. Sarah Monroe is the uh, manager of programming at the Bentway. And uh, that's an interesting space. And so, Sarah, welcome to the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a little echoey. It sounds like you're speaking to us from the Bentway, although there isn't any traffic noise. <laughs> so, so listen, for people that are not familiar with the Bentway, can you, can you describe it or, and give us a little bit of history? Sure. Uh, so the Bentway, for those who haven't been down to our site yet, is a fairly new uh, public space project within the city of Toronto. We're located, believe it or not, underneath the Gardner Expressway. And the current phase of the project runs from Strawn Avenue in the west to just shy of Bathurst in the east. Uh, and we have a great relationship. We're co-located in this initial phase uh, with the Fort York National Historic Site. So if you know where that is, you know where the Bentway is. Mm. Um, we offer, in addition to being a public space that's open and accessible for everyone, uh, we offer quite a bit of, of programming. So whether it's recreational programming, uh, concerts, um, opportunities to dine together or to see art installations in public, um, there's so much to be done in that space. Mm. And the the Fort uh, Fort York just just within the last little while opened their own new gallery there, didn't they? Yeah. So in recent years, they've redone their uh, visitors center, which mm. is this really beautifully considered piece of architecture that sort of mimics uh, what the original shoreline of Lake Ontario would have looked like. Um, and they offer all kinds of programming in their space as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now. You know, it's unique that it's under the the Gardner Expressway, which brings a unique architectural uh, uh, space uh, for people to participate in and and be part of. How 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 do you utilize that space? What are some of the things you do? <laughs> well, I think um, sort of one of the the misconceptions or preconceptions about the space is that it's going to feel claustrophobic mm. or or you'll you'll be very aware of the expressway up above you and in fact it's sort of exactly the opposite we have about five stories worth of height above us um, and one of the words we often hear down in the space is cathedral like it mm. feels sort of grand in its architecture mm-hmm. um, the the columns or the bents hence way uh, that hold up the expressway are really great surfaces for us to activate in terms of art installations, uh, projections, um, to to incorporate performances around. So they really do become sort of the dominant feature of the space. Um, and it, I can honestly say, is sort of a space like no other. Now, having say it is a space like no other, which is it is absolutely very unique, there are other places and other spaces similar to this uh, in other parts of the world where they utilize similar uh, architectural spaces under bridges and things to do uh, uh, the same s- kind of thing, correct? Absolutely. So um, the Bentway is actually the sole Canadian member of an organization called the Highline Network, which is a series of these what we call adaptive re- projects um, that are present in urban spaces across North America. So it's not a common fixture within Canada, but you'll see it in other cities throughout the states. Um, And we've very recently become a part of this Highline network that allows us to work collaboratively and and learn from the experiences of those other cities, um, as well as to do joint art projects together across those spaces. That sounds very cool. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah it's been, and, it's and, been wonderful. And I, and I guess it's nice to have the support of of a network where you you don't have to rely on on coming up with your own ideas all the time. That that you can it can uh, borrow these things and and help each other with these kind of uh, spaces. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's allowed for us to have a really interesting conversation um, in terms of issues that are present in the U.S. and also present in Canada, but in a very different form. Um, and one of those issues, you know, as we're working on this this current collaboration um, for an exhibition for our spring-summer season, is this discussion around monuments and monumentality, which is, is playing out in very different ways in the U.S. than it is in Canada, um, mm. but sometimes to very, very similar ends, talking about histories that have been um, forefronted or better represented in either country, and, and what is the... Um, I guess sort of the, the fairness of that, who is represented, who is less represented, are those narratives accurate in terms of the histories that they depict? Um, and I think that's something that's common throughout our spaces. Hmm. So uh, tell us, before we start talking about your spring-summer exhibitions that you, that you just mentioned, can you tell us a little bit about some of the, uh, some of the, the exhibitions or, or things that have gone on uh, in the last little while there? Sure. Um, so we opened our inaugural winter season. It was uh, about the coldest it's been in Toronto in 99 years, I think, and yet people came out in full force. That was last winter. Um, and we had a really great exhibition up at the time called Constructions of the Everyday, which was an acknowledgement of the fact that we were still very much under construction at the time, um, but that also you know, there are certain ways that we can look at constructing our everyday patterns of travel and interacting with one another um, and how the Bentway is a bit of a, a disruption of those existing patterns, but in a very good way. Um, we've also done a really phenomenal project last fall, uh, which got quite a bit of, of response from the community, uh, which was called Water Licked, and it was... Um, in uh, consultation and conversation with this really phenomenal studio out of the Netherlands, Studio Roosgaard, uh, they came down to the space and essentially sort of generated a virtual flood uh, of blue light across our site, uh, which referenced the fact that we were, as I said, the, the original shoreline of Lake Ontario, uh, and that that shoreline would have sat at a very different level if not for human intervention. So it was this lovely way to acknowledge the many histories of our site, um, the many potential futures of our site, given climate change and a lot of contemporary issues, um, and also to bring in a lot of voices from within Indigenous communities that were talking about water soft sovereignty uh, and their relationship to the landscape. Um, so there's just a taste of some of the projects that we've done in the past. So do you mind describing that a little more? What I mean by that is if someone were to go down there and experience that exhibit uh, where it was flooded, is it something, is it three-dimensional? Would they walk through it and feel like they were submerged? How is that? Yeah, you sort of felt like you were underwater. So um, we we enacted it as a three-day installation across the site. Mm -hmm. um, and as soon as it got dark enough, uh, the site was flooded with blue light and um, sort of a beautiful haze mm. that allowed you to see where the water line would have been, again, if not for human intervention. And so you were essentially submerged beneath the water. Um, but the topography of our site does change quite a bit. So if, for example, you were up at Fort York, which sits a little higher than us, you would be able to appreciate that, in fact, you know, at some points you were higher than the water level and at some, t at some points you were down below. Right. So it really did depend where you were across site. Um, but it was 
both awe-inspiring and, and spectacular and also really overwhelming when you think about the environmental implications of, of mm-hmm. where we are right now in terms of climate change um, and human intervention in the landscape. Right. Uh, Sarah, we have to take a pause, so um, we're going sure. to uh, just uh, take a pause here on Element FM, and we will be right back after this with Sarah Monroe, Manager of Programming at the Bentway. And we are back on Element FM, and you are listening in Toronto and Ottawa in Ottawa at 95.7 FM in Toronto at 106.5. You could also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across Canada by downloading the app and typing in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM and listening on your device of choice across the nation. Uh, on the phone with us uh, from uh, Toronto and the Bentway is uh, Sarah Monroe. She's the manager of programming at the Bentway. We've been talking about the use of this special and unique space that is under the Gardner Expressway in Toronto and some of the things that have gone on there. Sarah, you know, earlier on as we were discussing this and 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 uh, in, in, in driving by there and seeing the space and and walking around in there, you said some people get the sense that it might be claustrophobic, but if anything, um, you know, I, I think of it as a very almost theatrical space. It, those pillars give a very large, as you said, open area kind of and, and natural kind of um, almost performance space, as I mentioned, like a, th- a theater. There's, there's a designer I know that, that in, in the early days of theater uh, created very large scale operatic style uh, columns and things. And I, I can't remember his name it might be right, but I'm not sure. Um, and, uh, and, and it reminds me of that. It is quite grand. Uh, I think one of the things we talked about as the space was being constructed and, um, and, and turned into a space that's more welcoming to the public is the idea that if you were to purpose build a space like the Bentway, it would cost an enormous <laughs> amount of money and take a great deal of time. And, and I think the magical thing about it is here is this space that is very grand and really conducive to gathering and performing and enjoying art and culture, um, but that was sort of hiding in plain sight in a way. Um, it was land that hadn't been utilized uh, in that way ever in its history. It had been used in a lot of different ways, um, but pretty amazing to think that it's just sort of a ready-made space for us to activate in a very different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's covered. <laughs> it's got a natural covering. <laughs> so, um, so now let's talk about the future. Let's talk about what's coming up for the spring and summer. Sure. Um, so we're just on the cusp, believe it or not. It's a bit gray outside today, but on on the cusp of our spring-summer 2019 season, um, which for us is really a celebration of community. And so kind of questioning what happens when you bring people together to to share space like the Bentway or to share food and drink or to share big ideas or to share in dance or, or in sport? Um, you know, are those sorts of opportunities for sharing what helps to make a community um, and what else might help to make a community? I think really our whole season is a celebration of the people around us um, and of coming together to help make the Bentway a space for everyone. Okay. Um, so, uh, what can people expect to see or experience? <laughs> a lot. Um, so I think the the lovely thing about spring summer for us is I really do feel like there's something for everyone. Um, we do have a, a major exhibition going on across site, uh, which is called new monuments for new cities, which really does imagine 
um, you know, as monuments are being torn down in, in cities throughout the world and certainly throughout North America, um, what kinds of narratives and celebrations can go up in their stead? Uh, and so it's, it's political work, it's challenging work, but it's also really celebratory in the ways that it thinks about different people and histories. Um, so we're quite excited about that. Um, we'll kick off the season on May 11th with a monument summit, uh, which is what we're calling sort of this day of conversation that we're aiming to have about monuments and monumentality. Uh, we'll also have poster-making workshops um, so that people can can foreground their own histories and their own stories uh, and bring those depictions of them across the city. Um, there'll be some short performative pieces and really an opportunity to sort of gather together in this space. Um, we're also a part of the Contact Photo Festival this year uh, with a really phenomenal exhibit that starts in May uh, called A Nation Outside of a Nation, which is um, by an artist from the Netherlands uh, named Nadine Stins. Uh, and her photography really focuses on the, the people and the objects and the stories um, related to Filipino migrant communities. Um, so I think it's an interesting way to think about a community existing outside of its own space and carving out a new space um, for those people. Mm. Um, yeah, so quite exciting. And, and you know, for those that maybe aren't interested in, in having what are sure to be sort of challenging conversations in this space, um, there are other opportunities to gather through recreational programming that we'll be offering, um, through food-based programming. So I'm, I'm happy to speak more about that. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a little bit more about this this exhibit, though, because it looks as if there's quite a number of artists involved with this. Yes, it was a very big undertaking. Um, so I, I had mentioned previously that um, the Bentway is a part of uh, this organization called the Highline Network, which is really helmed by the Highline in New York, if you're familiar with that space. Um, but it represents a series of these adaptive reuse projects where underutilized land in a number of different cities uh, is being reimagined uh, as a space for the public. Uh, and so we're working collaboratively with uh, a number of other cities, uh, Houston and Austin, Texas, uh, Chicago, and New York. Um, and each one of those cities has invited five artists or collectives uh, to respond to this sort of prompt about uh, what a new monument for a new city, for a new future, might look like. Um, and those responses have been incredibly varied. Um, we're working with a really exciting group of artists who are thinking about who are heroes of their own communities, who are um, you know, individuals that, that might not be uh, heroicized, but that are important nonetheless. Um, what are conversations we need to be having right now about democracy or about belonging? Um, so I think we're quite excited. It's a, it's a big group to wrangle, but a lot of really important opinions to express. Mm. So, uh, Sarah, as as you are um, uh, the managing managing a programming for this space, how does this how does this differ from from positions you you've had in the past and and working with with uh, art or spaces or those kind of things? That's a terrific question. Um, I feel like I came to Bentway in, in sort of a funny way and from a lot of learning that I've had in past roles. Um, so my background is in uh, museum studies, essentially, and I'd worked in a number of archival spaces, um, generally, you know, in 
conversation and collaboration with and, and really on behalf of a lot of communities whose histories aren't always, um, you know, foregrounded or talked about. Um, I had a previous role with the Canadian Lesbian and Gay Archives, which is now recently rebranded to um, the Archives with a Q uh, as a way of talking about the fact that certain histories, even within their own community, were not always represented. Um, I've worked with the Ontario Jewish Archives. I've worked with a number of uh, diasporic spaces where people are talking about their histories once they have migrated to a new location. So I think what I recognized in those moments was, you know, there are terrific stories to be told, and everyone deserves a platform to tell those stories. Um, But it's often very hard to get people into an archive space or into a museum space where everything seems a bit precious and a bit protected. Uh, And of course, it's important that things are protected in those spaces because they're parts of history. Um, But what other spaces can we put those stories in that allow them to be accessed by more people? And I think the Bentley is such a great example of that. We're having challenging conversations in the public sphere um, anyone from a, a dog walker coming across our site to somebody who's really invested in history and art and culture can come out to our site and experience those conversations for free. Um, and I think to me that makes all the difference in terms of getting people invested um, in the idea of of art or a museological object or a performance or some expression of the self um, without having to sort of you know, draw people into an institution, um, which in their mind, you know, might be a kind of challenging thing to do. Mm. You know, as you were speaking, I was just thinking about what would you say is the best time of day to experience that space? (laughs) It's a good question. Um, I think it depends on the season, to be honest with you. There's... um, in the summer, it is a, a magical place. It becomes really sort of lush and green um, underneath. And at certain times of day, sort of late evening, you get this beautiful light that comes across. Um, and suddenly your proximity to the waterfront is is all the more clear. Um, and I think that's a lovely time to be down on site. Um, I think in the winter, there's also kind of a magic hour when it starts to get a little bit darker, obviously a bit earlier in the day, um, you know, and some of the lighting comes on and there's this feeling of wonder in that space that it doesn't seem possible that you could, uh, you know, grab a hot chocolate and go ice skating mm. with your loved ones or, you know, gather with people you've never met before in that kind of a space. And so I think... I think depending on the season, depending on what your interests are, um, there are lots of different amazing opportunities to be had within the Bentway. So let me ask you this. What, what would you say are the, the challenges of working with the space? And what I mean by that is, as we talked about, it's, it's big. It's very open. It has this, uh, this very um, – uh, it's a lot of concrete. Let's face it, there's a lot of concrete. <laughs> um, what, what would you say are the challenges in working with it? Yeah, I mean, the space in and of itself is such a challenge. Um, I've worked in a lot of gallery spaces or um, archives, as I mentioned, which are are very controlled environments. And um, I think that's such a luxury to be able to control the walls around you Mm -hmm. and what goes inside of those walls. Um, Whereas our site is, is the public. It's very porous. It's raining, it's snowing, it's um, it's hot in the summer. <laughs> I mean, all of those things that you can't control. And so 
from an environmental standpoint, um, you know, it's an interesting challenge. Um, I would say as well, there are so many layers of history within that space um, that I think it's really important to us and a, and a terrific challenge that will, you know, last throughout the Bentway um, to think about how we do justice to those histories. And it might be it might be indigenous histories, it might be um, settler narratives, it might be talking about industry in the neighborhood, it might be the evolution of um, communities as development has taken place. And I think it's such a challenge to always be mindful of the fact that it is a place that has served many roles throughout time, um, and to be aware of, of you know all of those narratives existing at this same moment while we're exploring them. So no one story takes precedent. Um, you know, no no one group of people is any more important. Uh, but that's a constant challenge to think about how you tell all of those stories all at once. Mm. Now, one of the artists uh, that are participating in this is, is Susan Blight, and she's an interdisciplinary uh, uh, First Nation artist. Um, mm-hmm. Do you know what what kind of, I mean, I guess it's an advantage to be an interdisciplinary artist uh, to work in that kind of a space. Yeah, I, Susan's practice is really compelling to me, um, in part because uh, she has done a number of projects in the past in public space, and they've really been about um, sort of the reclamation of that space, which I think is is such a critical gesture at this moment in time when we're talking about landscapes and who they might belong to, or in a city that's developing as rapidly as Toronto is, where everyone sort of wants their piece of that, and their piece of that is very expensive. Um, you know, what are the conversations happening around that? And Susan was quite involved, you know, in addition to the piece that she's created for this show um, and, and a great volume of other work that she's done, um, but in erecting street signs uh, throughout the city that reference original uh, Indigenous place names for those areas uh, as a way of acknowledging that, you know, Indigenousness is not a part of the past. This is a part of the present and the future. Um, and that if we're going to rename these spaces, we should at the very least acknowledge, uh, you know, sort of their legacy and how those two things exist in tandem. Mm. Um, so I really love the way that regardless of discipline, um, she's thinking about these big questions about space and ownership and connectedness to the land. Um, I think she's a very, very thoughtful um, and very talented artist, and, and we're lucky to have her on this show. Mm. Uh, Sarah, what's the website for in case people want to check that out online? Sure. I mean, you can check out all of our spring-summer programming on the bentway.ca, um, and you can also look us up on social. Um, uh, and there are specific pages dedicated to events that we've got ongoing, uh, past projects that we've done, uh, the project as a whole, which is of interest to some people who've never been down to the site. Um, so feel free to check us out at the pay.ca. Um, any last words that you, or things that you'd like to mention before we leave? Um, just that I hope I I hope in creating this season that really is a celebration of community. As I said, that um, that we'll see a lot of community members come out and celebrate that space with us and ask tough questions and share a meal and and get physical together and do all of the things that we hope that they will do. Um, because I think a project like this really is only as successful as the attitudes towards it. Um, and I think if this is a way that we can welcome people in and encourage them to get involved and engaged, um, then I, I hope I've done my job. <laughs> 
Excellent. Nice uh, way to leave the program. I thank you for participating with us today. It's been great having you on the line. I hope we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. We've been speaking with Sarah Monroe, the manager of programming at the Bentway in Toronto, Ontario. And we also had on our show earlier this morning, Darlene Coward-White, and she was the curator and Inuit uh, of the Inuit Art Centre and Winnipeg Art Gallery. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next time.